Are you a Malthusian? That's the question that's been directed at me a number of times now in response to talks I've given or things I've written about the material limits facing the aspirations and the formal and well-funded goals of the energy transitionists. So in this episode, I'm going to answer that question. It's a question that's also been raised in a variety of other ways in terms of the framing, but differently. In effect, is demand for energy minerals rises and prices rise, that will, we're told, stimulate more than enough new supply. You know, the basic law of economics of supply and demand. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Thomas Malthus, and I can't imagine anybody listening to this podcast who isn't, but for the record, he was the Cambridge-educated 19th century cleric and economist who famously or infamously wrote about the potential or even likelihood that demands from a population and economic growth would outrun the world's ability to provide enough food. And so starvation, famine was inevitable. Malthus was a contemporary of James Watt, the perfecter, not the inventor, but the perfecter of the steam engine. Both lived at the time then of the beginning that was obvious to them and everybody at the time of a great boom in economic capacity uh, for people to have more children and to have more wealth. And of course, it was a boom anchored in the power of harnessing combustion. But that's a whole separate thread later. So it was that boom, which allowed more people to become more wealthy and thus consume more stuff and have the demands for more food and to get and get healthier and fatter. And that's what inspired Malthus to worry, in fact, forecast that unbridled growth would outstrip inevitably the supply of food in particular. And again, thus famine would be inevitable. It's uh, beyond obvious now, more than 200 years later, since Malthus published that famous essay of his, that his claim was wrong. Hence, we now have an invective in many camps leveled at anyone who espouses similar views. You're a Malthusian, but you believe in limits. The Malthusians and modern Neo-Malthusians came back, by the way, in 1973, again, for those of a certain age, the Club of Rome uh, famously published its uh, bestseller. It was a huge global bestseller called The Limits to Growth, which was a revisit of the Malthusian claim that the world would this time, finally, you know, a couple hundred years after Malthus wrote his prediction, this time would in fact run out of not only food, but energy and minerals of all kinds. Not to date myself, but I read that book when it came out. I still have my original copy. It's all marked up with all of my objections to the specious claims that were contained in it. But it wasn't so long after the Club of Rome that we had Paul Ehrlich come along and a Stanford professor who claimed back in a famous book about uh, population growth, that by the year 2000, the world would in fact face the Malthusian outcome of famines and there'd be famines and shortages everywhere. Well, it turns out that Paul Ehrlich was wrong again. The Club of Rome was wrong again. The Malthusians have been serially wrong for the 200 plus years since Malthus. But the Neo-Malthusians are still, are still around, uh, still claiming that we're going to run out of stuff. Uh, anyway, the point of my brief revisit of the history of the wrongheaded philosophical and scientific Malthusian claims is that in my disquisitions and writings about the limits of minerals available 
to build the machines of the so-called energy transition, the windmills and solar panels and batteries, that people have raised objections, uh, claiming that economics of demand-driven price increases and the need for these minerals will respond in technology and engineers and innovators providing enough supply for the minerals. Hence, my claiming that that won't happen makes me a Malthusian. You know, I got to say the first time it was framed that way, it's kind of like a deep cut since I'm the polar opposite, as I've written frequently, of a Malthusian. I'm I'm in the camp of uh, no limits to growth or economies or human flourishing. The issues aren't about the limits, in fact, they're about the timing. And, if I, and, and as I'll explain in a minute about permissions. The point of this uh, exploration and my answering question that's been raised many times now in the last uh, few months to some of my podcasts and my lectures about the limits to minerals needed to build the machines and the transition. And my claim that there are limits and the counterpoint being, ah, well, Mills, you're a Malthusian. Markets will respond. We'll be able to do this stuff. Innovators can, can do anything. The point of this is that timing matters. <laughs> it's When you say there's limits to something, we have to define our terms. So I mean, there's ultimate physical limits to the minerals needed for the, ener for the energy transition goals? Of course not. Uh, copper, to uh, revisit some of these issues, the amount of copper we need for this is off the charts high. Does the world have enough copper in the crust of the earth? You bet it does. That's not the question. The question is, can we and are we and will we mine enough copper in the timeframes imagined for these transition goals that are being proposed and funded? So the point of the exercise that I want to walk through in this podcast episode is to talk about the limits and what we can do about the limits to the supplies for the minerals needed. And look, uh, let me revisit briefly the core issue that's in dispute here. And for those of you who haven't read what I've written about this or listened to earlier podcasts, just very quickly, the central question for the energy transition, which is to restate what it's claimed to be, replace hydrocarbons in the main with windmills, solar panels, and batteries, batteries for the grid, batteries for electric cars. That's the objective. Uh, the main challenge with that is the quantity of minerals and metals needed to build those machines, the solar, wind, and battery machines. And this, is a, in, this is an indisputable fact that the International Energy Agency and many others have documented that to deliver the same quantity of useful energy service to society, a mile of driving, an hour of heat, an hour of light, an hour of computing time, to deliver the same unit of energy service to society using wind, solar, and batteries instead of hydrocarbon machines leads to an increase in the consumption of basic metals and minerals, an increase from 300% to over 7,000% to deliver the same energy service compared to using hydrocarbons. And by that, when I'm talking about the basic metals, I mean things like copper, nickel, aluminum, lithium, neodymium, cobalt, steel, uh, glass, concrete, those array of materials. So it's a huge increase in demand for materials. Uh, it's, it's an astonishing increase in demand of materials. Put it into context, if you wanted to balance electric grids that are today balanced by burning hydrocarbons and storing hydrocarbons, if you use a gigawatt of wind or solar, 
instead of combustion machines by storing natural gas or coal, but if you use instead of a gigawatt of gas turbines or gigawatt of coal plants, and you want to use a gigawatt of wind turbines, well, you need roughly a gigaton of batteries to store electricity. I mean, it's a lot of batteries. It's a you know, billion tons of batteries for every gigawatt, every billion watts of, of, of power. And the world consumes power, of course, at uh, thousands of gigawatts. So this is a, these are really big numbers. They're, st- they're shockingly big numbers. I mean, again, I'll give you a, a context. There's about 15 million uh, battery electric vehicles on the world's roads today. Those vehicles have cobalt in almost all the batteries. They could use less cobalt in future batteries, but let's just, for context, the existing vehicles use a lot of cobalt. Uh, those 15 million vehicles, which is a tiny fraction of the 1.5 billion vehicles on the road, those 15 million vehicles have already consumed 15 years worth of the cobalt supply needed for smartphone, all the world's smartphones. So it's indisputably the case that pursuing an energy transition is going to create an unprecedented rise in demand for key metals and minerals. Mineral inflation will follow. Of course, it already has. Metal prices are went up a lot, uh, and then they relaxed back last year a little bit. But net-net, compared to several years ago, mineral prices are up a couple hundred percent. Uh, that should stimulate more supply. So far, it's not stimulating enough supply. So the response, again, is eventually it will, and the markets will catch up. So the key question is, are there enough minerals and if there aren't now, what can we do to increase the supply of minerals? All right, you get two ways. You can get demand destruction. If the prices go up enough, we won't use as many because we won't be able to afford it. Or if prices go up enough, markets, miners will respond and say, I'll, I'll not only expand the mines, but I'll use new technologies and new equipment to do mining in more efficient or faster ways. All that, all that, of course, all that's true. And here's where the details matter. How, you know, how much can we do? How fast? What can we really do about the mining sector? How much, how much more technology is available to increase the supply of metals and minerals for the world? Because we're going to need a lot more even without the energy transition because the world, again, is going to become, uh, despite the Malthus's worry, the world's going to become more populated and wealthier because of technology. As I explored in my immediate preceding podcast on economic optimism, and that will lead to more demand for more stuff. More stuff takes more metals. More metals means we have to find ways to mine them and refine them in ways that are acceptable and affordable. Okay, where will the mining happen? Whole separate discussion. Unless we really change uh, our our political philosophy in America, probably not here. Uh, a little bit of progress there in recent months, but really not much. The permitting process is maybe not infinite, but you know, decade, many many decades for many mines in, in America, and many mine permits get revoked after spending millions of dollars. So the mining will happen elsewhere, but that's a detail. If you're looking at the big philosophy of whether the world will do enough mining somewhere, whether it's Africa or Asia or South America, that will still get us enough copper or enough nickel or let me add, by the way, Russia, which is one of the world's biggest mining economies and relevant to the other issues that are going on in the world today. So there's a gap, right? Where we want to be and what the world's miners are planning to do with the technology that's available. And it's a very big gap. I mean, again, the energy transition will drive a demand increase over 
today's level of production for key metals and minerals, the demand increase ranges from 300% to 7,000% more than is now being produced. The issue isn't whether there's enough copper. I'll say it again. The world's physical resources of copper in the crust of the earth that we believe that exists based on geophysical and scientific evidence is way more than we could ever imagine consuming. The issue is how long does it take to open a mine? How much does it cost to dig the rocks out of the earth? How much does it cost to convert, crush the rocks and convert the ore containing the minerals into a pure mineral or metal uh, source that can then be chemically processed into a suitable form to make something like a battery or a solar module or a wind turbine. There's a lot of data, by the way, that the as you reduce the um, the target ore grade, again, uh, for those of you who haven't missed earlier podcasts, ore grade means the percentage of the rock, the ore that contains the metal you're targeting. You know, if, beyond obviously, if the rock has a 10% ore grade, that is 10% of the rock, the ore is copper, then you have to mile mine, dig up 10 times the amount of copper you want to get to it. If it's 1%, you have to dig up 100 times more of rock to get to the you know, 100 pounds of rock to get a one pound of copper and so forth. Digging up more rock means more money, means more energy. Uh, so you have more environmental impacts, you have higher costs and so on and so forth. So you clearly want technology to solve that problem. And technology has been solving that problem. The world is using a lot more copper and we'll stick with copper for the moment because it's the it's sort of the long pole in the tent, if you like, in this energy transition. It's the metal you can't do without. It's the it's the for all of the all of electrical technologies, whether they're wind, solar, batteries, electric cars, and it's the metal that the world is not now mining enough of to meet the demands that are being forecast. But the world has been mining copper for a very long time, and we know that if we look at the data that the cost to mine and produce uh, a ton of copper ore has been declining uh, for two centuries. It's unequivocally the case, it, but it hasn't declined in a giant uh, overnight, you know, five-year step function. It's declined over a long period of continual engineering progress. And that's meaningful. I mean, in, in, in real terms, it used to cost about $80 a ton to mine a ton of ore. And that cost has now dropped to something like $20 a ton to mine the ton of ore. And those are costs, by the way, before doing the additional uh, chemical processing to produce the refined copper. But th this is a very significant decline over a period of a, of a century plus to go down almost fourfold uh, in, the, in the cost to get a ton of ore out of the ground. So this is a consequence of inexorable, continual, century-long technology progress. We should expect that to continue over the coming century. Again, <laughs> to restate it, the energy transition goals are not goals to get rid of hydrocarbons in the next century. These are goals that are being mandated to get rid of hydrocarbons and replace them with wind, solar batteries in the next decade or two you know, banning the sale of internal combustion engine cars by the year, you know, 2035, so about a little over 10 years out, uh, banning new construction and even disassembling existing hydrocarbon power plants, coal, natural gas, immediately and replacing them with wind and solar. So we're not talking about century-long aspirations here. We're talking about 10-year aspirations and 20-year aspirations. 
these are very difficult to imagine at the scales we're talking about. But I'm going to come back to the Malthusian claim. The idea that we won't be able to produce that many metals and minerals over the next, I'll pick a number, 40 to 50 years, of course, is patently not true. Of course we will. We're going to, we're going to, we have enormous uh, untapped capabilities for new technologies in mining that are already obvious what they'll be. So let me let me paint a picture of what will happen in the mining sector and what's already beginning to happen, which would lead one to be the anti-Malthusian about the world's ability to supply su sufficient metals and minerals for all purposes, in particular for non-energy purposes, which again, to restate, which we will need without regard to the energy transition, a wealthier world with more people and more wealthy people or, or is going to require a lot more of all the metals and minerals we already mine just to fuel that growth and to do it in an economic way, we're going to have to improve our ability to economically and environmentally acceptable way, mine more metals. Fortunately, again, to restate what I say in many podcasts, fortunately, we're on the cusp of a, a technological revolution in manufacturing industrial processes that will make this possible, as I've outlined in my book. It's not just that we are on the cusp of a, a revolution in information technology itself, which is relevant to this because information is critical to surveying and identifying where where or where, you know where ore bodies exist, how to plan uh, a mine, how to operate mining equipment. That's all an information centric technology domain, all of which is getting better rapidly. But the underlying uh, improvement in the machines needed for mining has really entered an era of a, a profound uh, dislocation, if you like, or, or tipping point into a new era, it's significant as the arrival of uh, internal combustion machines themselves that are used to make mining possible without using you know, manual labor and shovels. It was it was it was and remains a big deal that one can dig up lots of rock with big machines that are that burn hydrocarbons because that's self-evidently far more economically efficient than try to do it by hand. That characterizes by itself the biggest single dislocation and the improvement of efficacy of mining in human history. We haven't had a, an improvement, a step function that big since the dawn of the age of the big machine driven by internal combustion engines, engines until now. And of course, this is my thesis on robots, which is the subject of some previous podcasts. But the to highlight and summarize for the purpose of this disquisition, the advent of useful robots, in fact, is likely to be seen in the hindsight of history. It's as big a deal in improving the economic efficacy in the environmental um, acceptability of mining as the uh, early advent of, of mining machines that are powered by, by hydrocarbons. And there are lots of examples of machines that will make a difference. I mean, we have Caterpillar, which is uh, properly bragging about the fact that they've already transported billions of ton miles of ore uh, at mine sites in completely autonomous trucks. But that's just the beginning. And most of the trucks at most mine sites in the future will rapidly move to autonomy because it's one way to get uh, expand the labor pool by taking people out of driving slow-moving trucks around and put them into higher-value tasks at the mine site. One thing will, will happen, and again, 
explored in a little more detail in an earlier podcast, but to summarize here, the one thing that will happen is we will finally see mines in the very near future start to use collaborative robots or cobots or exoskeletons, in particular anthropomorphic robots that can do difficult and dangerous tasks underground in the mines. This, this is no longer uh, a, a, a fictional possibility. We, we know such technologies are possible because they've been built, they've been used. Some of them are already commercially viable. Uh, maybe the best example of uh, the the fact that we know we're at a tipping point comes back to the uh, the test or the pro- the uh, uh, contest rather that the uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the famous DARPA, uh, under undertook uh, last uh, a year and a half ago, 2021. For those of you uh, who don't know the history of DARPA. They're the you know the, the agency the Department of Defense has to stimulate next generation technologies that are on the cusp of becoming commercially viable. Not long term research, but stimulating sort of pushing the envelope on things that are just on the cusp of being technologically possible. They ran a uh, something they call the Subterranean Challenge, which was to see if teams could deploy in a real uh, labyrinthian underground mine robots to perform mining-related tasks completely autonomously, sort of a network of caverns. They ran this contest, so they're lifting, moving, surveying, and so forth. Anyway, the, the contest in 2021 had uh, uh, a, a, a group of teams compete uh, successfully, performing the tasks. They had a winner. But to give you a, an example, one of, the, one of the winners was able to accomplish is the first order task that you would want to do in, in subterranean mining has to do with surveying. I mean, surveying is critical on the surface. It's critical in a subterranean environment. In this particular contest, uh, a team was hired by DARPA to do a highly high-resolution, complete survey of the subterranean caverns. And it took uh, one of the state-of-the-art teams with people about 100 person hours to do the survey. In the contest, a, an, a, you know, a walking this in this case, I think they used uh, both tracked robots and uh, and spot the uh, Boston Dynamics walking dog-like robot. That that uh, robotic team uh, did the uh, entire task uh, in a in a few days, and produced a subterranean survey and map that was as good as accurate, in fact, slightly better than the the hundred person hour uh, human team map. That's just the beginning, of course. The robots sub subsurface will eventually be deployed to do the dangerous tasks that are involved and essential to extracting minerals and rocks uh, from deep below the earth in dangerous conditions. That won't just be safer, it will be ultimately far cheaper, far more productive than having people do it. I'm using that one partly because I like robots, (laughs) as many of you know, they're my favorite example uh, uh, a technology on the cusp of a change, but it's not just robots. It's also the entire uh, pantheon of intelligent automation, not artificial intelligence, but intelligent automation of machines that are in and around industrial environments, in particular mines, that will bring incredible improvements in the economic efficacy and the velocity of, of production from mine sites and the mineral processing that follows mining. This This is... The world will arrive and is already beginning to arrive. It is a reason to believe that it is unequivocally the case that humanity will be able to produce the minerals we need in due course. The question you'd want to know is not whether 
we can produce it is how long does it take to get from here to there? When it comes to industrial equipment, it takes a little time. It doesn't take centuries, but it certainly takes decades. The machines themselves at mine sites, the big machines that are purchased, these multi-million dollar machines have operating lifespans of 30 to 40 years. Their economic utility lasts that long. You don't replace these big machines uh, every few years and you don't use a new class of multi-million dollar machine that's radically different. Casually, it takes a little time to qualify, test, validate, to then actually do what the manufacturers claim, and then to insert them into the manufacturing or the industrial process in a way that becomes not just comfortable, but economically efficient, because profoundly changing an industrial process requires a penumbra of things a, number, a, a lot of things in the penumbra of that specific activity to be changed, to be modified, to, to meet the new machinery. I mean, I'll give you a very simplistic example. When the railroad came along, it, uh, it, the, the nature and structure of where stockyards were located and where rail, railroads went uh, shifted to accommodate the economic efficiency of rail. But until that happened, the economic efficiency of rail was limited by the fact that the rest of the infrastructure of society at the time of the, uh, that early industrial revolution was not designed to accommodate rails, designed to accommodate horses and carts. It, it took time. It took several decades to really affect the full shift. It will take several decades again. And during those several decades, we will incrementally get better and better at industrial processes like mining, and we will be able to mine uh, more materials at lower cost and at lower environmental impact. But it won't happen in 10 or 15 years. And it won't happen if we don't if we don't create an environment in which economic risk-taking, because it's risky to try out new technologies, in which these risks uh, can be undertaken in a in a marketplace of place of ideas. In essentially preaching the gospel, obviously, of a free market to explore and try these things out. And it won't take place unless we get permissions. By that I mean governments allowing mining to happen. In the first place, which is not what's happening in America, and it's certainly not what's happening increasingly around the world, is environmental groups, the same environmental groups that are promoting wind, solar, and batteries that require lots more minerals, these same environmental groups, either the identical ones or the same family of environmental groups, are the very groups that are opposing the expansion of those mines and refining processes that are needed to build those machines. So the reason that I have said many times, and I'll say again, that we are not going to see an increase in the quantity of materials needed to build the magnitude of machines required for the so-called energy transition is that it's not happening now. These permissions are not being given. The kinds of incentives are not now in place. And the level of capital investment required on the part of the private sector is not now happening. That, that could all, in fact, change with the proverbial stroke of a pen. Governments can uh, remove impediments, can provide the kind of incentives for the kind of things that have to happen, but that's not what's happening. And then even if governments decide to do that, or, I mean, our governments or the European governments, then it does take time for the uh, industrial adoption of new classes of technologies to expand to the scales imagined. And again, to close on this, though, the expansion that we're imagining even if we don't replace all hydrocarbons, even if we replace half of the world's current combustion 
machines with wind, solar, and electric cars. If you only go that far, it still will require a several thousand percent increase in the mining and production of a whole family of metals and minerals. That's a heavy lift, no pun intended. And we're going to have to get on with the task and be realistic about what it will take. I, for one, think it'd be a good idea to unleash the industrial mining sector to embrace new technologies and be able to explore more rapidly and more freely to get access to those metals and minerals because we will need them, not just for the quantity of electric cars that the markets might buy without incentives because lots of people like electric cars, but because we need them for everything else, everything that exists, all the appliances, all houses and buildings, all smartphones, computers, everything takes metals and minerals. And I'll end with this um, last observation. We're going to need more whether we get the perfect circular economy and we do lots of recycling or not, because the growth rates for the new metals demands far exceeds the supply of materials that would come from even perfect recycling. And we'll never get to perfect recycling. It's not possible. And we're and even getting close to it's not affordable because in the end, money matters. So those are the realities. I'm not a Malthusian. I'm extremely optimistic that technology will unleash massive new quantities of metals. It just won't be in the timeframes that the energy transitionists hope will happen. And there will not be a transition away from hydrocarbons because of that, but rather we will add to the pantheon of energy systems additional ones in the forms of wind, solar, additional forms of energy consumption, electric cars in the coming years. That will be the framing for the future. We're going to need more oil, gas, and coal. We're going to need more copper, nickel, and lithium. All of it will require lots of big machines. Let's hope that the better machines get permitted, incentivized, and perfected far faster than is now happening to even begin to get close to the kinds of aspirations that are, frankly, independent of whether or not there's an energy transition or not. In the meantime, what we'll probably do is push the transition in the framing that it's been put, which will increase the demand for metals and minerals, which will mean that the countries that are willing to mine with the existing technologies will be the ones that will do the mining, which are countries like China, countries like uh, dozens in Africa, countries like Russia, which is, one again, one of the world's biggest suppliers of everything from steel and nickel to a variety of other uh, uh, rare metals and common metals. I don't think that's a particularly great outcome geopolitically or economically, but that's in fact what will probably happen given the path that we're on now, which I think, which by now should be very obvious, is not the right path. It can be changed, again, with the proverbial stroke of the pen. That is, of course, a political observation because we need to have government policymakers decide to embrace reality instead of a chimerical dreams of impossibilities or the pursuit, as I've said at other times in a, in a video I did with Prager, in the pursuit of unobtainium, the kinds of materials that don't exist <laughs> aren't possible. Oh, I'm going to close by saying if you are enjoying these podcasts, uh, once more, uh, give me a rating, whatever platform you're using. Uh, don't ask me if I'm Malthusian again, but you can ask any other question you like, or we could talk more about the details of the future of technology and mining uh, another time or the technology of robots, which I will come back to another time uh, because robots are one of the big transformational technologies of the 21st century. 
And with that, until next time, this is Mark Mills signing off for this episode of The Last Optimist. Thank you.